Hello, everybody. My name is Alex Marks, and this is Young History, episode 33 on Suriname. The capital of this country is Paramaribo, and there are a lot of unique things about this one, things you definitely would not expect from a country in South America. One of them being is that it actually has the highest Muslim percentage out of anywhere in the Americas, higher than the United States and Canada, and parts of the Caribbean, which had some influence from there, would be Suriname above all of them, with 14% of their population actually believing themselves to be Muslim. And there's over 200 mammals that call this place home, 200 different diverse ones that have are of different species, different genetic makeup, and different things of that sort. And on top of that, it also has the most densely, the most dense forest in the entire world because of its location off of the Amazon River and the Amazon rainforest. It is very, very dense when you compare the size of the country to how much forest truly is there. And there's a lot of things to get into with this country, things that I didn't know at all before I did my research. And I'm going to be honest, Suriname wasn't one that grabbed my attention hugely, but those are the ones that you should look to the best. I always kind of come back to the saying of whatever thing you're avoiding most is probably what you need the most, and that's probably going to be the best path for you. I think of that when I do these countries as well. The ones that don't interest me that much on just basis are the ones I end up finding very interesting things about as I do the history, and you're going to see that today. So I'm not going to drag it out any longer than I need to, and I'm just going to say thank you all so much for being here. So my name is Alex Marks, this is Young History, and this is Suriname. Our origins begin around 3000 BC, when different Surinamese tribes began to move into the land and start to call it home. These were the first natives and indigenous people to the land that came far before the Caribs or the Arawaks, who would eventually become natives here as well, but much later on. It would take a couple thousand years for the next people to show up, that would actually be the Lakono people, who are a sect of sorts of the Arawak tribe, that is more an umbrella term. And they came into the land and actually started to wage war very quickly with the Surinamese. And they actually pushed them off into the coast because on the northern part of Suriname, it's the sea, pretty much the Caribbean Sea, even though you technically wouldn't call it the Caribbean. But right above them is the Caribbean. It's right at like the end of the that curve of all the little islands from Trinidad and Tobago all the way up to the big one of Cuba. That whole curve, inside that curve is the ocean that Suriname borders when it comes to water and that is where the original Surinamese people would end up being pushed to because the Lenoko people actually took all the land that wasn't that but this kind of supremacy by the Lakono people wouldn't last long because a war would break out because as the Lakono were starting to build up their civilization and establish their power the Caribs actually arrived who are the warring island people of the Caribbean they start to attack different Lenoko, Lakono tribes and the Lakono start to attack back, and a full war breaks out, and it ends with them settling on the land as well. So now, by this point in history, there are three major people groups on the land. That would be the Surinamese, the Lakono, and the Caribs are all calling different parts of Suriname home. The next major event would come in 1498 when the Europeans would arrive. It would actually be in one of Christopher Columbus's expeditions. And because of the fact that this happened in 1498 as opposed to 1495 or 1492, there wasn't a huge amount of shock from the natives because there had been word passing between different Carib tribes, passing between Arawaks and between tribes of the Garifuna and other people like that, 
throughout the Caribbean that got to South America and it was news of these different pale looking people arriving on major ships on these giant vessels so there wasn't as much shock over them arriving as there was with some other countries and because of that they had some level of preparation for them to come and in this year 1498 there is no settlement established in that year or in the years within the next few decades or so after it takes quite a long time for anything to actually happen because when these ships started to appear they kind of just mapped out the land established a little bit of interaction with the locals it would actually not be until 1630 that the British would arrive here in the northern part of the Suriname River and would begin creating an establishment and settlement here so that they could start to harvest tobacco, which they saw as the most profitable crop here, which grew very great within the areas near the Suriname River because of the fact that it's kind of a break away from the Amazon River. This region of the world is very well, very fertile and very arable. That's a big reason why colonialism hit South America so hard. And because of this tobacco being so profitable and all those things, it actually gained the British not only a lot of money, but a lot of people to come into the land. It actually would grow to three times its size, both in population and land area, within just a few years after its establishment. And this new found wealth and success in this land would actually attract more powers. That would be the French. The French would create a colony further down the Suriname River, but they were unlike the British because they actually had bad relations with the Lakono people. The British established some different trade ties in different land areas where it wasn't infringing upon the Lakono, and the Lakono weren't. They had heard, as I said before, of the Europeans arriving, so they weren't prone to picking a fight with the Europeans because they kind of heard how it had gone so far. They had heard about the different losses, the diseases, the deceits. So they kind of just gave the Europeans their own land, and the British respected that as much as the British could, and so did the Lakono. So there wasn't much fighting between those two, but when the French came, they were much more adamant about having this lower area of the Suriname River, which was more in the heart of what was considered Lakono territory, and this created a lot of conflict, which would end up souring relations for both the French and the British within the land because of the fact that the French kept at fridging and then break away French soldiers or settlers would go and attack people of the Lakono. They would take women. They would steal from them. This created a disgust from the Lakono towards the Europeans, and it would cause them to start launching raids on both the French settlement and the British settlement, which would, for a time, force all of them, both the British and French Europeans, to go away from Suriname and not settle it at all. And it would stay this way as just a land where there were the Surinamese, the Lakono, and the Caribs for a long time until the English Civil War broke out because the governor of Barbados was more a loyalist, a royalist, I should say, than anything else, not loyalist because that's American Revolution, but he was a loyalist to the crown over the parliament. And he just sensed that because of the word from England and the way that the momentum was flowing, that things would end up favoring the parliament. And because of this, he knew that there was a good chance the people within his settlement in Barbados would probably turn against him. And because of this, he wanted to go establish a place for him to escape persecution to, and this would be Suriname. He would pick a place on the Suriname River. He would establish ties with the natives so that he could break away and run if it came to that. And very quickly, as the Civil War within England would start to spike up, this man, who was named Francis Willoughby, would actually get very tense. He'd start to realize what was going on, and he does break away from Barbados and go establish a settlement on, in Suriname, and he would call it Willoughby Land, named after himself. 
And as I said, he had relations with the natives that were very cordial. There wasn't fighting between them and he respected them. They respected him back. They were wary because they saw what this got them before, trusting a European. But he had a lot of money. He had a lot of sway with his power and he just had a settlement, left it alone. But as the English crown actually retook power, I'm not going to get into the whole politics of the English Civil War, but the English crown falls, there's a king executed, and they come back into power. And with this new power, the king actually wanted to use this region of Willoughby land within Suriname as a place to collect sugar because sugar prices were hitting their all-time high, and this was a great region to grow sugar because of the land being very arable, the Suriname River being so close. And Willoughby agreed to this, but on one term, he would have to be the governor of this new established British settlement that wasn't just Willoughby land, it was now to be a British colony again. And so it would be done now, Willoughby land would become an extension of British Guyana, and then the governor of this region would be Francis Willoughby. It wouldn't be long after this that a more international war would break out. This would be between the French, the British, and the Dutch, and they would strive fight for power within the New World, especially in the Caribbean and South America. And the fighting went on for a long time because different powers had different successes in different areas, but it came to a point where it was pretty much a stalemate between the British and the Dutch, and negotiations were made where... The, the Dutch would actually receive Suriname, which was, of course, a very arable region, very fertile. A lot can be grown here. The sugar, pro the sugar plantations and all that had a lot of power and profit at the time. But they would give up this kind of gross, rainy, seemingly useless area called New Amsterdam. And for those of you that don't know, New Amsterdam actually ends up becoming New York which ends up becoming New York City, which is one of the most successful cities in the world. So you win some, you lose some Dutch, but they do take this region in Suriname and start to establish very big slavery. And it gets so bad that Suriname is actually considered for a long time to be the worst place in the world to be a slave. The treatment was so bad because of how much field work it was and there was almost no rest, almost no slaves had rest anyways, but here it was, there was no rest there was very little freedom when it came to doing anything that wasn't just waking up, working, getting as little. F they, they gave them, the slavers gave as little food as possible to the enslaved people here. The work was brutal. It went on and on and on. And it was so bad that it actually created a rebellion within. And this would actually be the Maroons. Now, the Maroons were a group of escaped slaves that ran from different plantations in Suriname. And they ran into the Amazon rainforest which is a very dense one, as I said, with Suriname. And they actually make their own towns within kind of the heart of the land that is now modern-day Suriname. And they started to launch raids on different plantations and freed slaves. And they actually got so big for a time, were freeing so many slaves, attacking so many settlements, that they actually ended up being recognized as sovereign by the Dutch. And they were starting to receive tributes from the Dutch for all that they had done to them when they were slaves and to keep them at bay from invading again because these maroons had enough power to destroy and take over a lot of plantations and continue to free slaves but when this tributary payment started to happen and there's more recognition of sovereignty there would be less raids because now it was kind of a move towards preserving peace and any despite there not being raids to free slaves any runaway slaves would be welcomed with open arms by the maroons because that was their original point 
And the next thing that would affect Suriname greatly would actually be a thing that happened in Europe, which would be the Napoleonic Wars around 1799 to around 1814. And the British would actually occupy the land of Suriname because Holland, which is the Netherlands, fell to Napoleon during his invasions and his wars as he pretty much took over most of Europe. And the British just occupied it. They didn't want to take it back. There was that little bit of a feeling of, wow, this used to be ours, and we're, we're right next door in British Guyana. Hmm. This is kind of nice. But they didn't want to start a war over that, so as soon as the Napoleonic Wars ended, Congress of Vienna is going on, talks are going back and forth, the land is given back to the Dutch, and following this, abolition would start to make its roots start to move in, as slavery was pretty much ended around 1863, but there would also be a transitionary period where despite it being actually abolished in 1863, because Suriname was so, so, so bad for it to be a slave in, there was actually a 10-year transitionary period where former slaves would still have to work for almost no pay, unbelievable hours a week, and this would be like kind of the transition from them being slaves to being citizens. And they were still paid almost nothing. And after this 10-year period, they would eventually get true freedom. And to supplement in this, there was different arrivals and importations of people to kind of supplement in as indentured servants. Now, one of the first people to come were the Chinese, who came in actually in 1858, which was before slavery ended. It started as 500 Chinese workers who arrived. And because slavery hadn't fully been abolished yet... There wasn't a need for workers because slaves were just cheaper. Indentured servants, you at least have to pay, or at least, I'm mean, sorry, Chinese workers, despite not working for a lot of money, you still had to pay them something. Slaves, you just had to feed them, if that, and they would be forced to work. But this meant that the Chinese that arrived weren't quite useful to the Dutch yet or the plantation owners. So they actually ended up kind of being enslaved in their own way, as they're forced to work still. And they don't get paid at all until the 1860s when slavery ends. And now they're not slaves. They start to become more workers. But they picked a bad time to show up to this land because they still pretty much ended up as slaves. And by the 60s, their numbers would grow from 500 to about 2,000 Chinese workers actually starting to come into the land. And after slavery ended, that's when more indentured servants would come in, especially ones from Java, which is one of the major kind of islands of the archipelago that make up Malaysia, and a little bit of Thailand. And because of that, that's why there is such a population of Muslims here, because the religion that most of the people that came from Java were, it what the religion was Islam. And in the 1860s, there would be a gold rush that actually led to mining becoming a major part of the economy, and there'd be a lot of exporting of resources. And that would actually give a reason for these more these indentured servants to become workers in a different way because now they would be in mines they would be helping like lug out resources rather than they would be working on fields because now the industry was changing when it came to world war one and two Suriname wasn't directly involved in either but once holland fell in world war two to the nazi regime the land was occupied by the united states and then while this happened there was kind of a feeling within Suriname that they liked this idea of being free more than they did being under the Dutch because of course when the Americans were there the restrictions and stuff were a little more open because of course the U.S. didn't want to change any of the systems that the Dutch had in place but they also didn't want to infringe upon anything by kind of enforcing their own laws or anything on Suriname 
So the people started to get this taste for freedom because now they weren't being restricted as much. And this leads to the Dutch actually promising more autonomy to its colonies after World War II. And moves towards, moves towards independence start to be made after more autonomy was gained. And it became clear to the Dutch that they didn't want to maintain the colony anymore because it wasn't making them the same money as it was when it was a slave colony. And they actually give the country... Netherlands to the Suriname. They give $3.5 billion to help them transition into independence. And then in 1975, independence comes fully, which wasn't widely supported because many Surinamese kind of identified with the Dutch. And because of this, there was a big migration from Suriname to the Netherlands after 1975 because of this independence coming and a lot of people not supporting it. And as we see usually after independence with a lot of South American countries is corruption started to take root very quickly. There were some shady elections that happened in 1980, and because of the different accusations, the military actually staged a coup and took over. And once the military started to kind of abuse their power and start running the country in their own way rather than what the people wanted, there was a creation that happened, and that would be the Surinamese Liberation Army, which was formed in conjunction with the Maroons who still this whole time had their own settlements and their own culture. And they actually raided mines in order to pull power from the federal government. And they made major threats, too. They also said if their rights aren't acknowledged and their sovereignty isn't respected and that the country isn't ran the way it should be, they would break down one of the floods. They would break down one of the dams that held up parts of the Suriname River, and they would break it so that it would flood one of the cities. So this was a very serious conflict, and... It wasn't going to stop there because after these threats were made, many maroon villages were raided by the federal military and actually saw a lot of civilians massacred. We would almost call it genocide because of how bad it was. It reduced the number of maroons to being a decent percentage of the population to now being less than 5%. And this is what starts a big civil war for our time where rights of all people were restricted. There was curfews in all the cities. And this goes on for quite a while until there's kind of negotiations but those negoti negotiations more like a ceasefire than is anything else because that feeling of the Surinamese Liberation Army to overthrow and change the government wasn't gone in the federal military that was now running the government still was abusive of their power. And this would culminate when the December murders would happen, which would be while these restrictions were in place over who can go out, curfews and all this restriction was on the people, prominent citizens of Suriname started to speak out against the government, and many of them were rounded up and executed publicly, and there was debate over who ordered this, and it would actually be believed that this man who ordered it was Desi Botersi, who was the leader of the military at the time, and was accused of having these people killed, which of course put him in a very bad light, and established even more distaste for the government, which would actually reach even beyond Suriname and would go to international levels, because one of the effects of these December murders was that all foreign powers would say that they're not going to give any financial aid to the country at all, and this actually crushes the economy of Suriname, and then it leads to there being more talks between the government and the people and the Maroons to help improve the country. And for a while, there is a kind of democratic swing. By 1987, a National Assembly was formed, and elections would help establish a new constitution, but that wouldn't last long because another coup would happen. That would be in 1991 when the military took over because the government was being too close with the Maroons because the military never liked the Maroons and they remembered the threats they made and there were still sour tensions between because of the Maroons being 
pretty much genocided by the federal military. So when the federal military saw how much the government was talking with the Marines and establishing good ties, they didn't like this, so they overthrew them once again. And, of course, the same kind of thing happened where the the international community saw this and just shook their heads to and said, listen, we'll do the same thing we did before. You will not get a single trade out of us. You will not get any funding. Figure it out. And because of this, power left the military very quickly, and it didn't take long for them to have to step down again. And a new election happened again, and this would be now monitored by the international community. Countries like the U.S. and the Netherlands would start to look back on the, on the on Suriname and moderate and moderate the elections to make sure that they weren't shady. And true elections would happen, and the president who would win, even though it was seen as a clean election, would actually be the former military leader who ordered the December murders and the deaths of the Maroons. And for a while, things actually begin to stabilize and internationalize, and international support started to come back. But when it comes to unrest being not present, that wouldn't last long because movements for human rights started to get more and more power as trials over the December murders started convicting different officers who enacted them, soldiers who listened orders, much like the Nuremberg trials. People were now being tried for these, these war crimes that affected human rights. And despite different people being arrested and convicted and some being killed, the main person they wanted to handle was the leader of that former military, who was Desi Potersi. And they couldn't because he was the president at the time, and he kept finding ways to win elections and squeak past. But eventually, he would, it would be acknowledged internationally that he was a wanted man. And despite him being the president, he would be sentenced to 20 years in prison if he would ever step into anywhere in Europe or ever fall out of true power in politics. He ends up having to step down in 2020 because another case came up where he was accused of murdering someone, and then other cases came up where he was accused of having 15 political opponents executed. And this leads him to stepping down. A new president comes in, and in the two years since, there have been talks of trying to get him sent to prison and fully locked away. But there is fear that the current president may actually pardon the former president, Botersi, because he feels that it would create more political stability and create political peace, but a lot of people who are more adamant about him being punished or, you know, see how evil it was what he did to the Maroons and the people that stood up to him, they are the ones that want him imprisoned and locked away and to pay for his crimes, but there's a lot of debate over if it should happen or not. And with that, that gets us to pretty much the modern age, where... The country is kind of in a scary place. I know this personally because I have someone in my family who recently traveled there as a flight attendant, actually, and they just said it was very scary just to even leave the airport. There's a lot of insurgencies happening around the areas, especially the capital city of Paramibia. There's just a lot going on that is very scary, but there's almost nothing you could do. It's just a thing where right now they keep getting into these wars. One side believes one thing, another side believes the other, and especially in governments where the federal the federal power is going to put its foot down on top of whoever opposes them. Things get scary, for sure, and there's no way around that. And because of this, there's still fights going on. It's almost like the civil war between within Suriname never ended, and the end doesn't seem to be in sight anytime soon. But eventually, I do believe, cooler heads will prevail, and things will start to change as Suriname gets back to a place where it's kind of at peace. And... 
you know, that's the present day. One of the cool things about Suriname is that it has some of the craziest demographics, not only in South America, but anywhere in the Western world. So it's actually 38% Afro-Surinamese, and then it's 22% Maroons, because even though it dropped really low for a long time, as the population dropped and there were those genocides, it actually started to work its way back up. So 22% of the country, or 20%, is Maroons, those people who broke away and are ethnically different than the Surinamese. Then there's the Creoles, who are, you know, of course, a little bit mixed with the Europeans. They make up 16%. There's the Indo-Surinamese, which were mostly the indentured servant workers who came from India. And then there's the Java Surinamese, who are 14%. They make up pretty much that entire populate part that is Muslim, because almost everyone from Java is Muslim. There's only 4% of the original, like, Surinamese natives, like Lakono, Surinamese people, the Amerindians, only 4% of them. The Chinese workers that came earlier never got that big. They only make up 2% of around the 600,000 people that may live in the country. And then the Dutch, who used to own the country and owned it for the longest time, only make up about 1% of the country overall. And with that, that pretty much gets us to the end, where I always I leave it how I always like to leave it, which is with a lesson. And with Suriname, I say the lesson is to embrace both diversity and adversity, because this country has quite a bit of diversity, as you see with all the different races and ethnicities that make up the country, that define its culture. It's very different than Brazil, but has ties to the Dutch. It speaks in a bunch of different languages. There's different religions. There's a lot of different layers to the culture here. And that's how real life is. There's going to be diversity in your workplace, in your school, or at least there should be. And different areas you go and there's going to be different experiences that you wouldn't have gotten if you weren't experiencing that kind of diversity and the kind of differences in people and people groups in their culture so embrace that in the way that you know get the lessons you can from it enjoy it understand different people understand that different cultures operate differently and see what you can learn see what you can have fun with see what you like and don't like just experience it embrace it until the point where you've learned about it and then when it comes to adversity this country has been through many many wars it's been conquered by many different powers from the Dutch to the British for a time to the French, different people groups have called it home. You're going to face adversity just like this country has. And despite them still being in troubles now, they broke away from all those foreign powers. They broke away from all those wars that came to them rather than the ones they have within themselves. And despite them still being in struggle right now, the people of Suriname are still pushing forward. They still believe in peace and they are still a very warm, friendly people. No matter which, ethnicity they come from the national identity of Suriname is very warm people that care about each other no matter what the history is and that's something you could apply to your life is push through the adversity get through whatever's getting there and go back to diversity and look around at all the people around you use them for their strengths they'll use you for yours and you can get through things and the more you embrace both adversity and diversity is the more you'll learn, the more you'll understand who you are, the more you'll start to see a lot of things about the world. And the sooner you do that, the sooner you can grow, the sooner you can change, the sooner things may get better in your life. And that's why I believe embracing both of those is something you should definitely do. So that's going to be it. And I'm just going to wrap it up. So this was a fun one. Certain I was when I knew nothing about going in. So being able to research it and learn a lot and get a good episode out of it always makes me happy. So thank you all so much for being here. And for one final time, my name is Alex Marks. This is Young History. And that was Suriname. Y'all have a great one.